If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the December 7th, 2020 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Since we overshot World AIDS Day on December 1st, we couldn't let a show pass without acknowledging the impact this disease has had on our community and the world. Rick Watts reports. Since its initial detection in 1981, HIV has gone on to infect more than 75 million people worldwide, killing some 35 million of those. Dr. Michael Gottlieb first documented AIDS as a disease back then. Dr. Gottlieb, what is HIV? What is AIDS? And how does HIV work? HIV is the virus that causes AIDS. It causes AIDS slowly. It infects a person and then works its damage over years. On an average of 10 or so years, kind of gnawing away at the immune system to a point where the immune system becomes so low that the patient is developing these opportunistic diseases with bacteria and fungi and protozoa. And when a person develops these opportunistic diseases, they're considered to have AIDS acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Now, a couple of years later, the CDC refined that definition to say that anybody whose T-cell count or CD4 count fell below a number of 200, that they were considered to have AIDS as well. And the reason for that is that when the count falls below 200, at least in the old days before treatment, Uh, patients were clearly very susceptible to developing one of the opportunistic diseases. And so CDC wanted to make their definition more sensitive so as to get an accurate count of how many people, in fact, had the disease. And this, of course, is before the advent of the HIV antibody test, which tells you really who is HIV positive and who's HIV negative. Back then, why would someone have not taken the test? In those days, having a positive test was a death sentence because there were no available treatments. So I can understand a person not wanting to take the test, not wanting to know if there's no available therapy. What's the point of taking the test if there's no treatment? How did you first come to be acquainted with what has since come to be known as AIDS? It was 1981. I was a junior professor at UCLA. In the midst of a teaching exercise, I asked one of my 
postdoctoral fellows to find a patient who had a disease with immunologic features. And he went to the wards and came back to tell me about our first patient with AIDS. Of course, it didn't have a name that time. He was a 31-year-old man with fevers and pneumocystis pneumonia, one of the opportunistic infections that we've since associated with the immune deficiency caused by HIV. So this patient was very interesting, and we wondered whether he would be just one of a kind, that we would never see another patient like him, when in fact uh, in the next few weeks we saw three more patients who were virtual carbon copies of the first patient, and it seemed at that time that something very unusual was going on, worthy of reporting to the health authorities. This was not a subtle illness. This was rather severe, dramatic, and life-threatening from the get-go. And, of course, I was concerned and, and worried for their well-being. I began to think that this was going to be something very large, but I had no idea that it would be what it's become today worldwide. This was something that wasn't in any textbook, so we looked in the lab right away and, with colleagues, looked at the immune system under the microscope and found that this patient was deficient in these T-cells called helper T-cells or CD4 cells. And that seemed to be the basis of the immune deficiency. Something, some unknown event or exposure or toxin or even a virus was attacking this particular arm of the immune system. And there was a lot of speculation at first, with a lot of wild theories as to what was causing this, because our first four patients were all gay men. There was the popper theory, there was immune system overload, there was African swine fever, there was all sorts of wild stuff. But from the get-go, we thought it was a viral disease, because there was precedent for other viruses causing at least a transient or temporary immune system depression. And we thought that, in fact, the immune system damage in some of these patients might heal on its own, comparable to what we saw with some other viral diseases. But that wasn't to be the case with HIV. Are there still people out there who think that HIV doesn't cause AIDS? Yeah, there are a few people out there like that. I think there are fewer people like that than there used to be. Because some of the people who, in fact, claim that, in fact, were HIV positive and wound up dying of AIDS and their children dying of AIDS. So it's kind of difficult to, uh, in those circumstances, to say that their HIV was not the cause of their ultimate immune deficiency and death. And let me just add that the treatments that we've developed that are aimed directly at HIV and at no other virus or dietary issue or any other claim, those treatments have turned around the HIV epidemic here in the United States such that people stopped dying as often as they did in the mid-1990s as a result of the institution and availability of life-saving medication directed against HIV, specifically. What happened to those first four patients? Well, all those patients died within uh, 9 to 12 months of coming to attention Again, this was a dramatic illness. They were at the advanced stage of immune system burnout, D. 
due to HIV. They had essentially no immune system left and fell prey to these opportunistic viruses and bacteria that caused their deaths very quickly. In those early days of the epidemic, when the government wasn't paying attention, the gay community wasn't paying too much attention, but you had all these patients that were coming into you, and uh, there wasn't a lot that you could offer them. How did that feel? Oh, that was awful. That was just awful. We had these AIDS units in various hospitals and Sherman Oaks and at Midway Hospital, and at any time there'd be 20 or 30 patients on a ward, all with AIDS, and it was like a MASH unit. You would patch them up and send them out, and they'd be back weeks or months later with some other horrible infection. And I remember patients very well by name and and what they looked like and uh, just how much I wanted to help them and uh, powerless to do that. In the period of time that was covered in the Dallas Buyers Club movie, when we had so little to offer patients, I still remember patients who we lost uh, because we just didn't have medications and just how much they wanted to survive and how much we wanted to help them. And yet we were powerless to, to do anything but provide comfort care and let them know we were trying. I think it helped them to know we were trying, that we were still doctoring, that we were still listening to them and hearing about their lives and what made them happy and in the times they were out of hospital. But it was a very awful experience for anybody in the medical profession, specifically myself. It was a uh, painful experience. What was the most difficult part of sounding the alarm to alert everyone that something was going on that they needed to pay attention to? Well, the most difficult part was trying to figure out how to do it. I was uh, an immunologist by training and not an infectious disease doctor. And so my first instinct was to call the editor of a medical journal rather than the CDC. Fortunately, the uh, editor of the medical journal suggested that I call CDC. And once I called CDC, there really was no problem in sounding the alarm. CDC recognized that it might be important and invited us to submit our cases for publication. They were published. They were widely read uh, across the United States. People in other cities who were seeing patients said, aha, here is what we've been seeing. It's the same thing as uh, these people are reporting in the, the journal. That was no difficulty. I think there was a resistance certainly in uh, the gay community, to accepting the fact that there was something new, that there was something possibly affecting that community more than other communities. People, for good reason, wanted to go on with their lives. They didn't necessarily want to believe that there was some new threat. Where did HIV come from? Is it new, or was it newly recognized? Well, it was newly recognized in 1981, but pretty clearly there were some cases, a smattering of cases happening in other cities prior to our description of the disease in 1981. From looking at frozen specimens of blood from blood donors in the United States, it's pretty clear that HIV was certainly here as early as 1977. And uh, further studies of frozen specimens revealed an HIV-positive specimen from Zaire from 1958. 
And so pretty clearly it's a virus that was percolating out there under the radar for a long time. And even further studies uh, date its crossover from the chimp species into humans as early as uh, 1915. And the crossover from primates to humans is pretty easy to explain because protein sources in sub-Saharan Africa are scarce. People do eat what they can kill in the bush, and they can kill chimps and other primate species. And one can imagine a hunter uh, butchering an animal, cutting themselves. In the course of doing that, the mixing of the blood occurs, and the virus jumps from the chimpanzee species over to the human species. And this event is actually thought to have happened at least five times in history in sub-Saharan Africa. If someone contracts HIV, do they always develop AIDS if left untreated? Most people who contract HIV do go on to develop AIDS. However, there's a small percentage of people who are what we call long-term non-progressors, where their own immune system seems to contain HIV and work against it, and they're protected from developing the immune system burnout that leads to the opportunistic infections. And those patients are actually very interesting, have been widely studied in terms of what it takes to contain HIV. And that's very relevant to HIV vaccine development, to know how certain patients are able to get a handle and squelch the virus. What happens if HIV is inadequately treated? Well, unfortunately, we had a lot of experience with that in the late 80s and early 90s when we had only one or two drugs. And the problem there is that HIV has a marked uh, tendency to develop resistance to antiviral drugs. So inadequate treatment means using only one drug or two drugs, where it really takes three drugs to contain the virus. And that's what we discovered in 1995 with what's called highly active antiretroviral therapy, or the cocktail. But people can still mess up with the cocktail and take the drug intermittently or miss doses of a drug, and that gives the virus an opening to develop resistance, and the drugs fail and can never be used again. We have heard a lot recently about something called PrEP. Is it a good idea or not? I think it's unnecessarily controversial. It is just one more thing that a person who's HIV negative can do in addition to safer sex and condoms to protect themselves against HIV. The science is sound. The medication, Truvada, is available with prescription. It has to be used properly, correctly, and, and those of us who prescribe it take special pains to educate our patients who are HIV negative how to use Truvada in addition to other measures to protect themselves against contracting HIV. There are people who will not use it according to the instructions, and they are taking some risk. But if they're already not using condoms, and we know that gay men are using condoms perhaps 50% of the time on average, it seems to me that it is an important harm reduction strategy to make Truvada available even to patients who aren't practicing safer sex as at least an effort to prevent their contracting HIV. Along the lines of needle exchanges for IV drug addicts? Exactly. Something that reduces the risk of contracting a disease. We already know that there's a lot of unsafe sex going on, and this is one more measure to prevent HIV transmission. But the science of PrEP is good, 
And uh, my experience so far is that uh, patients that I've prescribed it for are using it very responsibly and have not changed the nature of their sexual life. The development of resistance in the virus, could that be likened to evolution? Oh, absolutely. That's what it is. It's survival of the fittest. It's the virus uh, evolving to develop mutations that allow it to escape the drugs. It's not anything by design. It's kind of random. It's selection pressure, kind of like finches in certain environments. If the food isn't there for them, for one type of finch, another type of finch exploits that and becomes the dominant species. And the same is true for HIV in terms of its variants. Thanks, Rick. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more of Michael Gottlieb after this quick break. World AIDS Day, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. World AIDS Day, observed every December the 1st, is dedicated to raising awareness of the AIDS epidemic caused by the spread of HIV. The concept originated in 1988 at the World Summit of Ministers of Health on Programs for AIDS Prevention. Since then, it's been taken up by governments, organizations, and charities worldwide. Since 2005, the project has been spearheaded by World AIDS Campaign. Their theme for World AIDS Day through 2010 is Stop AIDS, Keep the Promise. On World AIDS Day, governments and health officials give speeches and lead forums on HIV AIDS topics. And of course, memorials to honor those who have died of AIDS are held all over the world. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Vaughn Gary. Hello, I'm Randall Kleiser, director of Grease, Blue Lagoon, White Fang, and It's My Party, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. Now back to our conversation with Michael Gottlieb. This is Rick Watts. You're listening to IMRU Radio, and I'm talking with Dr. Michael Gottlieb, who in 1981 first discovered AIDS and wrote the first paper sounding the alarms on AIDS. To look at the medication advertisements or to listen to some folks, I get the feeling that there's a perception out there that HIV is no longer a big deal anymore. Are they right or wrong, and why? It is a big deal. Uh, I don't know anybody with HIV who wouldn't want to turn back the clock to a time when they were HIV negative. Saying that, people can live comfortably, productively, healthy lives with HIV, provided that they can get the medication they need and that they take it. I have some issue with uh, depicting uh, everybody with HIV as looking very healthy, uh, totally well, very sexy, because it minimizes the impact that HIV is in fact having on them, that they may look very well, which is great, but they are still coping uh, with being HIV positive. The drugs and the condition itself has long-term consequences uh, with respect to what we call the comorbidities, uh, things that come along with the disease state, osteoporosis for some patients uh, and for some drugs, higher incidence of heart disease and diabetes, uh, all associated with being HIV positive. 
Side effects of these medications and long-term tolls to the body, are there other syndromes patients and doctors need to be aware of? There's, uh, you mentioned osteoporosis. Are there other arthritic conditions or autoimmune or other conditions? There are some other conditions. There are some autoimmune conditions that people need to be aware of. They're fortunately rare. With regard to side effects, I would say that uh, over the years, the medical community has attempted to weed out the drugs that are most associated with side effects, such as neuropathy, painful fingers and toes. We, we have avoided the drugs that do that, and we use them in the 90s. But we've constantly refined medication regimens to minimize side effects, and the new regimens are, in fact, very effective and much cleaner with regard to side effects than the older ones. That said, there's still a requirement to take medication every day. And there are still some side effects associated with medication. And so it's better for people to avoid HIV and not have to take medication. So to those young folks who are HIV negative and say, well, it's no big deal, I'll just take a pill every day, uh, it is a big deal. How do you work with these issues and keep them manageable from a medical standpoint and a quality of life standpoint? Well, we're constantly reviewing patient medication regimens with our patients, trying to weed out medications that may be causing a side effect, such as high cholesterol or high triglycerides. We constantly try to refine our regimens. Now that HIV for doctors is easier to manage, we also are paying more attention to these comorbidities, to getting back to being just regular doctors again, looking at uh, blood pressure issues, blood sugar issues, cholesterol issues, the typical issues associated with an aging population. As you're probably aware, by 2015 next year, it's anticipated that 50% of people living with HIV in this country are going to be over 50 years of age. So if there are 1.3 million living with HIV, that's uh, roughly 700,000 people with HIV over age 50. Not that long ago, we'd have been surprised to, to hear about that. People are finally living long enough. In the 80s and early 90s, the situation was pretty bleak, and we couldn't imagine taking care of 80-year-olds with HIV. And indeed, uh, in my own practice, there are several. Those patients are very happy to still be with us, and their quality of life is actually very good. Any developments on the horizon that look particularly promising to you? Well, one thing that looks interesting is the ability to take medication less frequently. There are a couple of drugs in development that may allow a person to be treated once a month with uh, an intravenous uh, preparation of medications with a very long, what we call half-life, one that sticks around for a long time. And that would be particularly applicable to uh, patient populations who are not as obsessive and not as adherent to taking their daily medicine. A couple of other things are interesting. Uh, one of them is uh, cure research, where there is, in fact, uh, one bona fide HIV cure. I met him most recently for the first time at the U.S. Conference on AIDS in San Diego, Timothy Brown, the so-called Berlin, Berlin patient. And we had a great uh, opportunity to, to chat and had some photos taken together. And it's just exciting for me to meet somebody who, through heroic measures, was able to eliminate uh, HIV very convincingly, which says that, yes, it can be done. Uh, my own view is that it's not going to be easy. There's got to be an, a better way than what Mr. Brown went through, which were bone marrow transplants for uh, leukemia, which was a second disease that he had. 
But researchers at medical centers are working on easier ways to uh, rid the body of HIV. I don't think it's going to be next week or the week after, but it may be something on a five or 10 year plan. A year or so ago, there was news about an infant that returned to negative status. I seem to remember reading recently, though, that that didn't pan out. You're right. The virus recurred in this infant who was off medication. And so that was disappointing, but not entirely surprising because the virus does hide in reservoirs in the body. And it can, in fact, be latent there and only emerge at a later time. But these cases are important opportunities to study and figure out, you know, what it takes to eliminate the virus. I have to say that uh, it's great when the media cover HIV at all these days, because they rarely do. But they kind of go overboard on some developments, like the Mississippi baby. And you read about it and hear about it for weeks after the story breaks. That, of course, is because the news media cover something new in a disease state. They don't cover a disease that's endemic, like HIV, that's part of the background of illness in America. They cover epidemic, like Ebola. The fact that there are 20,000 cases of Ebola in West Africa, yes, that is big news, I agree. But the fact that there are 35 million people in the world today living with HIV and that that information never makes it into the mainstream media, that troubles me. So much progress has been made with HIV over the 30-plus years since you documented it. Has that had an impact on the research and treatment of other diseases? Oh, very definitely. Uh, The uh, gains that we've made in HIV have been the model for the development of treatments for other diseases. For example, chronic hepatitis C. The drugs that are now being rolled out just in the last few months for the treatment of patients with chronic hepatitis C were developed using the same model, the same combination cocktail approach that we used for HIV. And this model may be applicable to other disease states, other viral illnesses, including Ebola. I get the impression not only are there some of the medications that are applicable across those two platforms, but that even some of the basic building blocks of science in terms of understanding the cell's molecular biology, and even that, had it been Ebola that had crawled out of the jungle first instead of HIV, we would have been in a much worse situation. I think you're right. We were lucky that HIV came to attention first, and it came about at a time when there was kind of a revolution in biotechnology. Uh, The availability of monoclonal antibodies and the availability of DNA technology and In mid-1990s, we got access to what's called the viral load test for HIV, which proves to be the new gold standard of success in therapy. But we didn't have anything like that prior to the mid-90s, just 20 years ago. And that's been invaluable in the management of HIV. So we, in a sense, have been lucky to have the access to these tools to deal with the HIV epidemic. And it goes back to the idea that basic research pays dividends. In the now 33-plus years since you first sounded that alarm, what have been your most encouraging and inspiring moments in this epidemic? 
There have been a lot of inspiring moments. Our patients inspired us early on, patients who knew that we didn't have what we needed to help them, but we were doing the best we could. They appreciated that, and they didn't in any way critique us for not having the answer. And the uh, gay community has been very inspirational with regard to establishing community organizations and activism, such as ACT UP, putting pressure on the regulatory agencies to make drugs available sooner. All of that's been very inspiring. Uh, I was fortunate to be uh, involved with Miss Elizabeth Taylor in her work in fundraising for HIV and creating awareness for HIV. And of course, I, I met her in the aftermath of my caring for Rock Hudson when he had AIDS in the mid-80s. And that event uh, was kind of a pivotal event, a tipping point, if you will, in the public's awareness of the disease and the epidemic. Prior to Rock Hudson, the AIDS epidemic was very hush-hush. And after that event, people began to be more aware of it and develop some sense of empathy for people who were living with the virus. What do you say to someone coming into you now as a new HIV patient? There's several types of patients. Some patients come in never having tested for HIV, and once they test, they find that they're positive. They may have had some inclination that they were positive, and that's why they never tested. And so they come in, and we get a baseline as to where their disease state is at, and we can offer them medication. And we emphasize the adherence message and we sit with them and with a menu of different options of medications, and they choose what's going to be most uh, convenient for them and what side effects they're willing to put up with and what side effects they're not willing to put up with and how many times a day to take their medication. So those patients, I can pretty well tell them they'll do well and feel better and have a better prognosis once they start medication. Uh, I don't have a crystal ball to tell them that they're going to have a normal life expectancy similar to the age-matched HIV-negative person. Can't say that. The other type of patients I see are young men who are newly HIV-positive, just having converted. And I feel very badly in that circumstance because, as you know, there are 50,000 people every year who become newly HIV-infected. And many of those are young people who weren't taking precautions. And that's where this issue of PrEP comes in, pre-exposure prophylaxis. And when I see somebody 21 years old, newly HIV positive, I say to myself, what more could we have been doing to prevent this person from becoming HIV positive and having to deal with this for a lifetime? But there's nothing different that I can do because it's, it's too late. But of course, we will prescribe medication for that person, and their prognosis is excellent. But I certainly wish that we'd had an opportunity to intervene prior to their becoming HIV positive. And uh, I feel fortunate that at least in my lifetime, we were able to advance the state of the art to where we are today, which is a much happier situation where I can tell someone, uh, yeah, we can manage this. Dr. Michael Gottlieb, it's been a real honor speaking with you. I think it's no exaggeration to say that many 
many people here and around the world are still alive today because of what you have done and continue to do. Not many people can say that. Thank you for all you continue to do. Thank you, Rick. It wasn't part of this conversation, but it should be noted, although not a cure, pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP has been a game changer in the prevention of HIV. Yet 38 million people globally were living with HIV in 2019. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. The AIDS Awareness Stamp, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. On World AIDS Day, December 1st, 1993, the U.S. Postal Service joined the American Association for World Health, the Centers for Disease Control, and the Point of Light Foundation in raising awareness about AIDS. It issued a 29-cent AIDS awareness stamp. Historically, World AIDS Day is an international observance designed to provide education and awareness on issues surrounding HIV AIDS. The stamp, designed by artist Tom Mann of Warrington, Virginia, features a red ribbon symbolizing compassion and awareness. The Postal Service issued 25 million booklets of 10 stamps nationwide, with AIDS hotline and referral numbers listed on the booklets. Sheets of 50 stamps were also on sale. Other public health-related stamps include ones related to public health, public hospitals, polio, and cancer. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Sarah Prescott. Hi, this is Sam Harris, singer, actor, author, husband, dad. I'm so many things, I'm about to explode. Listen to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. With Sam Harris's stage musical Ham, Slices of Life, making its debut as a filmed show in virtual theaters, We'd like to take the opportunity to revisit the interview we conducted when he debuted the original book. Steve Pride, Wenzel Jones, and Michelle Marie Gilkinson report. Our guest tonight is Sam Harris, a multi-million selling recording artist, Tony nominee, as well as a television stage and film actor. But apparently that wasn't busy enough because he is now an author of a lovely little book called Ham. Slices of a Life. <laughs> But no matter how accomplished he is and what he's done in the last 30-plus years, I'll never forget that cute boy in an oversized suit with an oversized voice that I first saw in Star Search in 1983. Mm. Mm. And here's just a quick taste of what that was like. It burns over the rainbow and You know, that's one of those TV moments. I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when I heard that. I was just thinking the very same thing. I mean, did you think in that moment that you were about to become a cultural iconic moment? <laughs> no, but when I hear it now, it just makes me wonder how my head didn't explode. Well, and and speaking of the head and the hair, um, when you look, <laughs> that whole look that you had cultivated with the oversized yes. jacket and yeah. the high top sneakers, and I mean, that's so iconically 80s. Did you, did you know that was going to happen? 
Well, no, no. First of all, I did not invent the mullet. Let's make that very, very clear. <laughs> <laughs> but you chose it. <laughs> but I did. I did follow suit. However, yes, the oversized tuxedo thing. I loved Charlie Chaplin. I loved the whole tramp kind of thing, and I always felt kind of fat. So the idea of wearing bigger clothes and being smaller inside them, and then the tennis shoes just let me sort of jump around a lot. Well, and a friend of yours sort of helped you with that look, didn't Yes. You? Well, my mentor, Jerry Blatt, was my writer and director. I think I put together the getup. It was a, during a show that I was doing called Out of Control at a tiny little 50-seat venue in Los Angeles. My background singers were called the International Pancakes. And that was when we really sort of, I was experimenting with the image and the, everything sort of came together and then Star Search happened. So it just timed out. I got to tell you, I actually tuned into that the first time because a friend of mine, I'm a childhood friend, was on that show that, oh, really? that year and had called me. It's before internet. He called me and used to like, I'm going to be on this show. And so I tuned in, and after you, I actually don't think I remember what he did. <laughs> and he won. He won more. He was one of the winners. He fronted Sawyer Brown, Mark Miller. Uh, oh, it's Mark Miller? Yeah. Mark's great. But um, I, I was so – I mean, all I could talk about was Sam Harris after that. Well, thank you. The, uh, Sawyer like, well, Brown is enough. pretty fantastic. And Mark's – they've been – my God, they've done very well. Good guys. Well, now, you're such a close friend of Liza Minnelli because as I read through him, which – is a terrific read. It's hilarious to read. And the celebrity dish is quite delightful. But I kept wondering, is there ever a point in your life when it stops being surreal that your friend is Liza Minnelli? I mean, because she's got that nickname for you. You know what I think? I think friends of mine who are extraordinarily gifted, who are the best at their craft, you remember that when you're working, when you see them on stage, when you see them do what they do. But then when you're in your real life, you're friends. You're just each other. So much of my relationship with her and with other people who I find that, you know, extraordinarily gifted like that. Yes, a lot of our conversation, our life is about creation and curiosity. But yeah, I think you sort of leave the what, I, what are you looking for? The awe factor? Yeah, I don't think about that. I mean, it's, she may be in awe of being with Sam Harris. Well, that's, that's very true. true. I didn't consider that. <laughs> <laughs> but now, well, one of the things that occurred to me when I was reading your story about Aretha Franklin, it mm. seems like there are two lessons in here. A, you should never meet your idols. And mm. B, idols can be some of the best people in the world. Which, in your experience, have you had more of? I've definitely had more experience with people being what you want them to be, or more. Those that come to mind. I was so influenced by the history of show business, by Lucille Balls and the Sammy Davis Juniors and the people, uh, I said, I mentioned I loved Charlie Chaplin, you know? I think I was more into things that sort of, a lot of them that predated me than I was my own contemporaries. And I loved music that I grew up on, but Lily Tomlin and Lucille Ball and, and uh, you know, like Sammy Davis, people like that, that's who I was fascinated by the, the craft with. Mm. And strangely enough, so many of the people that I learned the most from were comedians and were writers. They weren't just singers or they weren't just actors. So then when I got, to, I, I, I fell in this time in history when I, when Star Search happened and I sort of fame kissed me or rather stuck its tongue down my throat. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden I was everywhere. But what it did is it gave me, you know, as it does, carte blanche to then work with these people and meet with these people and go in backstage doors or be doing a TV special and be able to share a dressing room with Al Green, you know, I was a kid, or do something with Sammy Davis. And it was life-changing. And those are the people 
they they did there were very few disappointments and even as far as the aretha story which you know you say the book is is dishy at times but truthfully it's the book is my is about me it's my perspective it's my experiences i don't think i'm saying anything in here that somebody doesn't know i'm not revealing this is not a tell all book but in my investigation of myself and my own experiences these are characters these are people who play parts in my life and in that Aretha story, which is just the most horrible circumstance anyone could ever, ever be in, in a blizzard in Cleveland, everything was late. Everything was wrong. I didn't get to rehearse. Because you had was, gone to open for Aretha. Gone to open for Aretha Franklin. I was so excited. I was a kid. I was right out of the box. Oh, at her request. We at her request. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'd grown up not only listening to her, but imitating her to f- learn how to place my notes, my voice. And so this was huge, huge. And uh, everything that possibly could have gone wrong went wrong. I went, they kept pushing rehearsal back and I got to the theater and no one was there. Not a musician, not a house manager, no one. And it was 50 below freezing. I'm not exaggerating. It was like 50 below with the wind chill factor. It was illegal to be on the streets. (laughs) And we were having these concerts and I show up, nobody's there. And then finally they start to sort of loll in the band and they tell me that there's no time to rehearse my music because Aretha's not there yet and all these. And they wanted me to go up cold. I'm like, I was young, but not stupid. You know, I'm like, I'm not going up. I'm not going up without a rehearsal. These are new charts. It was an orchestra I'd never worked with. I didn't even have my own conductor with me. And so I ended up lying to the audience. And they and also, by the way, went after all this. Oh, and the show was an hour and a half late getting going. They'd mm-hmm. been standing out in this Arctic weather People were having fingers removed from frostbite. It was a horror. And so, but then they announced me, no music. There's no band on stage, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I went out to this angry, horrible mob crowd. And I came out and the first thing I said was, pretty pissed off, huh? <laughs> pretty pissed off. I know I would be. I said, I got no music. And I made up a lie that my charts had been lost on the plane, which was not true. And I said, I'm yours. I'm here. I will sing. I will tell jokes. We'll make brownies. We'll do whatever. And I sat on the edge of the stage and sang for half an hour with no band. And because I was honest, they were mine and I was theirs. And then I look into the wings and the promoter, who frankly was responsible for this entire fiasco, is giving me the old showbiz sign to stretch. You know, keep going. I'm like, what? So I stayed. You know, I kept going on and on. It was a disaster. But I kind of, it was also such a learning experience because those of us who come from the theater, the stuff of the theater, and you tell the truth, you go on, you do it for the people. I wasn't going to not go on. There are people there with tickets. And uh, it turned out to be one of the greatest experiences of, on, on stage ever. But I was going to say, this book is not all show business stories. Either. There's no. a whole lot about raising your child. Yes. And your husband. I'm not raising your husband, but I being have a family, a gay family. and. And the thing about the ch- your your stories about Cooper, with your son who's now five, five. He's five. is that um, you say how Cooper is this very boyish little boy, <laughs> and it's almost hard for you to relate to him because he's such a little bruiser. We have nothing in common. And yet, do you find as he gets older, he's learn- being nurtured by you, or he's just continuing on his little bruiser way? The great irony is, when I was a kid, I was 
into show business and writing stories and making things and creating sets and saving dead birds and do you know, all this. <laughs> and my father was the one who was like buying me guns and trying to get me to be on baseball teams. It was things. Oklahoma. It was Oklahoma. But I think that's a lot of dads. They just presumed that it's going to be like when they were a kid. And so now I'm having the reverse experience because my kid is everything. I want to qualify this. I have learned through speaking with people and other parents, it is completely natural for little four and five year old boys to be obsessed with blood and guts and horror. It is. It was also normal for Jeffrey Dahmer, and that's what concerns me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we have a great time, and we laugh all the time. And he's imaginative. He does impersonations. But yeah, he loves to build things and destroy things. And and uh, you know, it's always about I've just cut off your head, Daddy. There's blood everywhere. <laughs> it's like he's Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> you know, one of the things I love. One of the things I love is the stories of your childhood and mm. your parents and upbringing. Yeah, being a small black woman. Growing up in the Midwest. Me, yes. Yeah, it must have been hard. When did you know you were gay? I thought you were asking me when I knew I was black. <laughs> um, I, uh, gee, you know, I, I, knew, I knew I was different from my earliest memories before it had a name that specified shame where I grew up. Uh, I, I definitely knew by the time I was 10. Um, but it was a it was a secret. It was completely. When I was ten years old, I was in Gypsy, and uh, we newsboys didn't have anything to do in the second act, along with Baby June and Little Louise. And we would go up three floors to the costume room and layer ourselves in costumes. This is all in the book too. La you know the Kinsey and sack jackets and and World War II khaki breeches and feathered hats and things. And then we would play strip poker. And we would have a cigarette and a nip from something someone had stolen. And we would play strip poker. And when I was 10, it got down to just the boys. And uh, we, we went all the way down. Uh, I mean, there was no – we didn't touch each other. <laughs> but, you know, I think that was one of those times that I'm like, oh, yeah, this is fascinating. This yeah, is, you got to have a gimmick. <laughs> you got to have a gimmick. Well, speaking of gimmicks, speaking of showbiz, Michelle Marie has actually seen you perform. Yeah. Oh, yeah? I think it's been probably, it was probably close to 15 years ago. What was it? At a, it was a one-man show at a theater in L.A. And I remember my uncle just called me up and said, I have tickets. You and your cousins are going to this show. You have to see this show. And we got picked up by my parents, and we went to the show, and we all just sat there. We didn't, you know, we were being told what to do. We didn't want to go. Right. And we just sat there, and we were completely riveted the whole time. Wow. Thank you. Do you yeah. remember her? I'm sure. Of course I do. <laughs> you probably saw me winking from her. <laughs> I'm sure that was probably the show Sam. Yes, I believe it was. So that was like, yeah, 2002 or something. Yeah. Well, and now that you're speaking about, you know, honesty being such an important thing for you, mm -hmm. that totally came through in your performance. Because up until that point, I'd seen a lot of... Very traditional musical theater. Right. Lots of show. And it was the first thing where I was like, is this guy acting? No, he's for real. He's for real right now. Do you know what was in that show? There was a whole section in that show about, I called the fear section, in which I talked about my worst fears. And through the monologue, I became more and more drunk. And then played out this scene in which I was sitting at the piano like I was in a piano bar, a has-been, mm -hmm. about what I used to be. And it was my worst fear. And it was, this, it was funny, but it was very dark. Well, that was even before I acknowledged that I was an alcoholic. <laughs> I, did, I celebrated 10 years recovery last week. But how about, that's freaky art and real life, is that mm -hmm. I am portraying 
in public on a stage, my worst fear, which is being an old has been lush. Yeah. And I had not even acknowledged my own alcoholism. It was right after that I, that I did. Actually. Well, speaking of taking it to the stage, I just read the review of your of your show at Fifty Four Below, mm-hmm. where you're actually doing this book on stage. Can you believe it? What kind of fool and am I? I think you'd posted a, a video of you singing an original song from the book. Yeah, or well, based on the book. Or based on I wrote a that. song. We didn't have. We had an opening song, and the director, Lisa, Larissa Cokerno, who's just brilliant, and Todd Schroeder, who played that show you saw, Michelle, mm-hmm. and has been with me for twenty two years. Um, uh, we had an opening thing, but it didn't really feel exactly right. And the director kept saying, is there something else? No, it's too late. It's too late. Because we're going on a three-month tour with this show. And like three days before we left town, I came in with a new song called Open Book. And I was like, duh, why didn't I think of this title before? And so, yes, there is an opening song called Open Book. And the show, you know, the story. The book is a collection of stories and essays, non-chronological, like you said. It's childhood, it's fatherhood, it's showbiz, it's uh, marriage, it's it's an attempted suicide. A cornucopia of Sam. A cornucopia. But the play, I'm calling it now, uh, of Ham, is more linear. And it really does deal a lot with the little Sam kid, the outsider misfit, who is trying to find his voice and his survival tools. And the show ends with the last story in the book, which is the adoption of our child. Well, it, it's a wonderful book, and I encourage everyone to go out and read this book. And is there a website where we can go find more about SamHarris.com? Sam it's so easy to remember. But and you're not the, the other Sam Harris, which is so confusing. Every time I type Sam Harris, I get like a neo-scientist well, he something. Is, he is, and he's also an author, but yeah. we have the same... Uh, Publisher Simon Schuster, so that should be. I, I did have somebody say Sam Harris. Oh, the singer, the atheist. I said the, the, singer, the singer or the atheist. It's the gay show. Come on. <laughs> SamHarris.com. Sam, Thank you, yeah. Sam Harris, for being here with us tonight. Thank you so much. We'd you love guys. to have you on again yeah. sometime I'll, soon. Anytime. Let me know. So yeah, and I can't wait to see the show that comes out of this book. Based on Tony Award nominee and multi-platinum recording artist Sam Harris's critically acclaimed book, Ham Slices of Life. The original stage production in which Harris plays 12 different characters was developed and directed by Tony and Emmy Award-winning actor Billy Porter. Tickets for online viewing in Lemley Theater's virtual cinema can be purchased at watch.lemley.com. That's W-A-T-C-H dot L-A-E-M-M-L-E dot com. Okay, boys and girls and everyone in between, we still have time for a last word. And tonight... That's Sam Harris reading a story from his book, Ham, Slices of Life. How the world can change, it can change like that, due to one little word, married. Naturally, like at any wedding, all the attention should be paid to the bride and groom, so I tried, I tried, I tried, 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 tried not to stare at Michael Jackson, but I just couldn't not. He was wearing a rigorously tailored black suit, festooned with velvet and sequined piping, and a darling Peter Pan collar centered with a diamond brooch. His hair was flat-ironed into a flirty Marlo Thomas flip. His face couldn't have been whiter if he'd been an Irishman locked in a windowless basement his entire life. I'd met Michael on several previous occasions since the mid-80s, and he'd become less and less human each time, not only in appearance, but in manner, his very person. The man was on his own planet, Michael Planet. 
His eyes, darkly lined in black, remained closed throughout the service, and his head bobbed and wobbled from side to side to the rhythm of a music no one else could hear. Occasionally he would titter to himself at an internal joke, showing his teeth just a shade less white than his face, and raise his shoulders like a five-year-old girl who just said the word penis for the first time. On the other side of the altar sat Elizabeth Taylor. She was wearing an ensemble that made me think she'd looked in her closet that morning and said, What shall I wear? Everything! But she was still Liz Taylor, and somehow it worked on her, down to the veiled, black, tooled, and feathered hat set slightly askew on her head. Or was she tilting to one side? I'd also met Elizabeth on many occasions since the 80s, and I truly adored and admired her as an actor, humanitarian, and one of the great purveyors of nasty, nasty, dirty jokes. But she was clearly exhausted from the trauma of the shoe ordeal, and when the priest requested we lower our heads in prayer, she did. And she never came back up. She never came back up. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a reminder, We're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Good night. Sam Harris. What did I hear? That I What did you like that I lost track of? What did I do that I don't do the way I did before? What isn't there that once was there? When did I lose the sweet one I got? Something in me then you could see that beckons to you no more. Oh. Out of date 
and outclassed by my past. What did you seek that's gone in me? What did I use that I'm now shy of? Why is the sequel never equal? Why That I